If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. Green Dreamer is an independent podcast supported by our listener patrons. If it's become a regular part of your routine, if you'd like to see it continue and join our online community starting at just $2 per month, you can head to greendreamer.com slash support to learn more. The industry started to rely on so much on certifications and, you know, blockchain and all these ways to kind of secure that things are happening the way people say they're happening. But I tell you, there's nothing like just being in a community where goods and services are moving around to all these people you know. Fibershed's become very relational. Like, I know the person who wove my pants. I know that they did not use finishing agents on those pants. I can go to that mill any time of the month and do a site visit. This is part two of our conversation with Rebecca Burgess, the executive director of Fibershed, chair of the board for Carbon Cycle Institute, and the author of Harvesting Color and her newest book, Fibershed. In part one, we closed off discussing the dangers of us thinking that the so-called scientific solutions developed by venture capital-backed biotech corporations will be able to solve our deep-rooted ecological crises. And now we're going to pick up from there to explore why the actual solutions we need will likely be undervalued and not given enough attention towards what localizing our textile and even food systems can make possible for us going forward and more. Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to ecological balance, intersectional sustainability, and true abundance and wellness for all. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. I always point to how if we were to look at thriving biodiverse wild ecosystems, they thrive based on having a greater complexity of biodiversity and all life rather than stripping things away from the land. So the, the reason that they thrive is because there is more complexity rather than less. So that's certainly something that we need to keep in mind and think about going forward. And I'm wondering, is there a reason why governmental agencies, journalists, and perhaps even some research institutions as well are more interested in the development of these technologies as opposed to the already proven nature-based solutions? Um, money. Hmm. Because you can 
you can patent DNA now. You know, there was a 1984 Supreme Court case, Chakrabarty versus somebody, who basically paved the way for American corporations to start in the process whereby you could use recombinant DNA. Let's say you want to move a gene from an animal into a plant, or you want to edit a gene, you want to take parts of the DNA out, which is what CRISPR-9 enzyme does or allows you to do. And you can take your novel new piece of nature, or you're calling it nature, and you can patent it. And when you can patent something, you can sell it and only you can sell it. Now, if you think about a ruminant, like, so if I wanted to, in my garage, purchase the DNA that would allow me to make spider silk, which is a genetically engineered yeast with a recombinant DNA structure that has spiders, spider DNA inserted into yeast. And then I feed it GMO corn and I make a biofilm and I get to make, you know, silk in my garage. A lot of people would be like, oh, that's cool. Well, it's not. (laughs) And if you actually tried to go and get that DNA, you would legally not be able to do that unless maybe you've paid a heavy licensing fee that might cost. It may not never be allowed, but I can imagine that these are technologies that would be millions of dollars to license. If I wanted to graze my hillside, so let's say I want to make a sweater out of that technology. A, it's probably completely prohibitive because it's proprietary. I don't have access to that life form. But if I want to graze my hillside or my neighbors want to reduce the fuel load, which California is suffering so much from a preponderance of fuel load because we've suppressed fire for so long and we have climate change exacerbating the heat and the evapotranspiration, I could graze my hillside with sheep that do not cost me money. <laughs> I could go and get a few lambs from someone who has too many. They, you know, I might, Maybe I pay a few hundred dollars for some sheep and I graze my hillside with my neighbors and I reduce the fuel load and um, I give them a haircut in May and spin the yarn in the summer. And then by the, the, the fall, I'm knitting my sweater. <laughs> All done for a few hundred dollars while getting fuel load reduction and having the companionship of wonderful ruminants. So I, I give that simple example because it's like the money behind these technologies is touched to the proprietary nature of the technology. And so anytime that that occurs, you throw the ability to decentralize technology, to open source technologies that doesn't exist any longer. And that's why I think there's so much excitement. I mean, Obama's administration published a, something called the Blueprint for the Bioeconomy. And they talk about these living factories as being the next wave of the economic growth. Because really, we've, we've basically, in many people's eyes, we have mined Earth to such a degree in the West, the Western cultures have, that we no longer have a way to make money. And so we have to find a new place to make money. So let's go engineer DNA. We'll make money there. And I think that's what excites people because I don't know how much more advent of technology you can see, how much more ingenuity you can see in certain areas. I think there's a climax in how far we can go. And this is considered a frontier. And it's basically, like I say, it's a frontier that'll pad the pockets of a few people, but it'll make those life forms very secure within corporate boundaries. And they will not allow other communities to just go and make this stuff. And that worries me about rural communities. It worries me about indigenous communities. It worries me that that we'll start rebuilding all of the manufacturing infrastructure around these proprietary technologies. And then we will have less and less freedom 
to actually make our own clothes and engage with nature in proactive and life-enhancing ways. So I see it as a great divide, and I, I have very little sense that we actually need it. So it seems superfluous, and it seems very dangerous. So do you think it's safe to assume that going forward from here, we can expect to continually see more media attention and hype around the development of these more so techno fixes to our issues and that we need to keep in mind that it doesn't necessarily mean that these solutions will work better, but it more so points to and is evidence of how money continually is running our society. Oh, it's absolutely completely a signal that we have not learned our lesson from all of these industrial revolutions and the effects of one technology have continually begged a new technology. Oh, now we need new technology to clean up the last technology. And so they call it disaster capitalism. And so it's kind of like you can just keep going this way and having a few people get very wealthy off of the disasters that the last technology created or the social dysfunction that the last technology created. And yet, as the Earth's natural resources continually get denuded by the antiquated technologies, mining, fossil carbon extraction, antiquated textile production, antiquated food production, generally all espoused by Western countries. Indigenous communities know how to protect their landscape. 80% of the planet's diversity is being protected by Indigenous communities right now. So yeah, as, but as things get more and more denuded and the Western countries are allowed to go whole hog into parts of the world and extract, I do think the pressure, people will start to feel, oh my God, the climate is changing faster and faster and faster the state of psychological emergency becomes greater and people will be like moths to a flame on techno fixes. Unless we have this awareness that these are the same mentalities and the same attitudes that created the problem in the first place. And we have to unplug from, from that mentality and that system that one technology begets another, begets another, begets another, and, and ends up refining and moving the money into these narrow and narrow corridors. So I think, yes, we are going to see more moths to the flame on it. We're going to see more hype, but we have to support each other in knowing that there is an absolutely better way forward. And I hope that Fibershed can continue to help support people to understand that. Right. So going against all of these very strong currents, as we're moving forward from here and the fashion industry is looking at different ways to green itself, what do you think are the limitations of greening a continually globalized fashion system? And how can localizing the entire making process benefit the earth, the people and the animals involved, and also the communities in ways that a globalized system might not be able to? That's a very good question. And I think it comes down to connection with nature. And we see this with the whole move to throw, you know, animal agriculture out the window. If people don't have connections to food production or textile production, they start making gross assumptions about what's going on in the system. I mean, even frankly, I had to do that in writing some parts of the Fibershed book because the data on what's happening in Vietnam, Bangladesh, China, Cambodia it's hard to glean what's actually happening and the impacts are very hard to determine. So you have to take very gross, broad scale data and you have to kind of say, well, I think this is what's happening in the global industry. <laughs> and what fiber sheds do is they say, no, you know, we actually can start to decentralize the system, take full responsibility from soil to skin and back to soil 
But we can only do that if we know exactly what's going on. And the industry started to rely on so much on certifications and, you know, blockchain and all these ways to kind of secure that things are happening the way people say they're happening. But I tell you, there's nothing like just being in a community where goods and services are moving around to all these people you know. Fibershed's become very relational. Like, I know the person who wove my pants. I know that they did not use finishing agents on those pants. I can go to that mill any time of the month and do a site visit. And that actually, that mill that I'm describing is growing in size and will become a a global player in a way. Uh, At least they'll be serving California needs, but they'll be the size and the scale to bring the prices down on the textile. And what's exciting to me is to think that in these transparent systems that are built on relationships and understanding, we can really also solve problems in a really profound way. Whereas when things are at this global scale, it's very disempowering for all of us to feel like we can make change because we're kind of beholden to what the, oh, oh, this is organic cotton. Well, I hope it is. That's what the tag says. And so you're going to be able to do like the tag or what they're telling you. But when you work in a system that actually allows small designers to get involved in low minimum mills, which is what we're working on, we're working to see how we can get as much access to our infrastructure by as many people as possible. We want to see a proliferation of people making their own clothes, small brands emerging that don't have to, you know, buy 10,000 yards as an entry point to start their brand. And so I think in, when you have that diaspora of small designers all working in a regional supply chain, like I say, problems can get solved. Oh, we need blue. Let's grow eight acres of indigo. Oh, we need to figure out an alternative to this finishing agent. Let's work with some of our local universities and figure out a green chemistry solution. I've seen that happen. And I am so excited to watch like our carbon research has been so site specific. We don't have to use IPCC or global data to tell us what's going on with our soils. We can specifically say in our soils, we know how much carbon is in our soils. We worked with UC Davis. We mapped and modeled. We know how much carbon we can sequester. We are out there restoring these landscapes. We are doing it with our own two hands. We are taking the climate crisis into our hands empowering ourselves to change this and we're restoring landscapes that produce our fiber and then we're adding the regional supply chains onto that we're bringing the footprint down of these textiles and we're broadening opportunities for small designers and i feel like when you put all that power back in people's hands it's exciting it's beautiful yes it's challenging but responsibility is a challenge like taking responsibility is hard work but it's it's so worth it and so that's what I see is fundamentally the cultural shift we make with these fiber shed communities, this decentralization effort, is that we're building relational systems. And I think the world has been kind of not giving enough credit to how important these relational systems are and systems that put power back in people's hands. There's so much need for that right now, especially considering what we're facing. I wouldn't want to leave it in the hands of a few corporate masters. <laughs> Stream.
since this is your second time on the podcast, we're going to have a different set of final five concluding questions for you. What's a book or article that's shifted your understanding of sustainability? Tending the Wild by Kat Anderson. That is a book about 13,000 years of indigenous land management in California. And that was an absolute game changer. And it continues to be because she chronicled all of the biodiversity that the state had before Europeans came or as they were coming. The reports that they themselves wrote about the amount of whales, the amount of pelicans, the seals, the sea life as a whole, the salmon that were so thick, they crowded the streams while supporting a very robust Native American population. I think that book changed my idea of what that was sustainability. That was that was a thousand generations of humans that were able to create an environment for themselves that created physical, mental, and spiritual health while sustaining almost globally like ranked in the top five in terms of global diversity. They were able to sustain diversity. California is now ranked in our area in the top 25 of biologically diverse places on the planet. But, you know, we were so abundant in life and yet the people were also abundant and healthy. And so I, I go to that and I think about all the indigenous communities that are still fighting for their land and intact. And so I do a lot of reading of how indigenous land management has looked in different parts of the world. But Kat Anderson's book, Tending the Wild, was seminal for me. And then the other book, I think it's just a great reference book, was Paul Hawkins' Blessed Unrest, Mm. uh, which chronicles the amount of small individual orgs across the world that are acting as a functional counter to the technocratic corporatist approach and how many civil society groups actually do have a vision for creating functional and healthy communities and how many of them are actually manifesting that. So Blessed Unrest talks about that. And then, yeah, those are my, some of my two favorites. I mean, I'm inspired by the work of, you know, Cradle to Cradle, William McDonough. I was very moved by that when that first came out. That's been some time. I'm very interested in circularity, but a deeper form of circularity than often gets talked about in today's buzz culture. I'm interested in soil-to-soil circularity. What's a product, service, or system you wish existed to help us live more regeneratively? Well, we, we need to decentralize milling systems. And this is in food, fiber, and I think actually all material goods. We need to be able to repair. We need to be able to create a, a longer use phase cycle in everything we own. And we need systems that support us to do that. And yes, on the technology side, I I do wish that due to the, the urgency of climate change, we had systems that as we build these decentralized systems that help us metabolize climate beneficial virgin goods, virgin fibers, I should say, through mills and create climate beneficial clothing, or we are reclaiming, upcycling and recycling the clothing we do have, that all of that should work off renewable energy, geothermal, wind, solar so I'm, I think the systems we need, like I say, they extend the use phase, they metabolize virgin materials close to the soil where those fibers are grown, and they're all renewably energy powered. Mm. And that's, that, though, though that vision of the future, that system, I think is 
is what is needed. And I hope it comes very soon. We're definitely working on it. Yes. Um, what's a policy or nonprofits work you feel like will make the most systemic positive impact for a healthier future? I think there's probably two main areas that I would say are pretty, pretty critical or three, I should say. But the first is an economic development strategy that includes redesigning these systems and means of production and working on the legal architecture so that these the means of production is as much as possible cooperatively owned or that there's a profit sharing model. So again, it's in the it's in the design, the legal and the business architecture. I think nonprofits generating designs for what their communities could look like, what what businesses need to exist, who's going to run those businesses, how do they get funded? So basically being a network hub where you're connecting government grants to you know, and philanthropy, and you're also connecting talent, maybe that coming out of design schools or other schools that want to start running these businesses, I think work to really rebuild your, your rural and or suburban or urban economy around these principles of soil to soil. Nonprofits doing that work. Our nonprofit has been doing that work and we, will, we need to do more of it. I think working on global policy, uh, we need more advocates helping us rewrite trade policies in not the way that we see going on right now. I think, anyway, I could go on and on about that, but, but a really thoughtful approach to trade international trade policy is hundred percent essential. Like we can almost do none of our local work without having that be hand in hand with it. And then the third thing is nonprofits that are willing to build coalitions with basically the people who've been holding the bag on the knowledge base for how to live well on this planet. We have to keep respecting and hearkening back to the work of communities that have lived in one place for thousands of years. How did they do it? What were the tricks? How do we learn from them? How do we support them and empower them to keep protecting these landscapes? And how do our fiber sheds, food sheds, watersheds, how do we collaborate with communities that, that know how to protect and enhance life? How do nonprofits like ours, how do we continue to reach out and build, I would say, empowering partnerships with indigenous communities? Those are, mm. those are kind of my top three. <laughs> yeah, lots to work on. What do you do or say to yourself when you're feeling burnt out and unmotivated? Uh, well, I, I tend to be the type of person who gets myself, and I think this happens for women a lot, our form of burnout can be less sudden. It can be this kind of a slow, erosive process. I mean, yes, there's days when you're just exhausted, but <laughs> I keep telling myself the, the, the form of regeneration you want to see for all life on this planet also needs to apply to you. <laughs> <laughs> and so I keep telling myself, like, taking time to regenerate your physical capacity, your mental capacity is as important as anything else. And that, lo that love of self is what you, you, if you give it to the planet, you must, you must start with yourself. So I have to kind of coach myself because it's hard to watch what's happening and not want to work your ass off like 24 hours a day. And I do have that tendency. So I have to tell myself to, to give myself the kind of love I have for the earth. I need to start with myself. Yeah. And finally, what advice would you give the you just starting out in your ecologically minded journey, personally and professionally? I would just say stick with it. <laughs> consistency. Consistency is probably the number one 
saying that I, I had, uh, you know, going for me a little bit, but I would say that I could have done a much, I would, I would coach myself as a younger person to say, say like, you know, okay, so you're not seeing the change you want. It's not looking the way you want it to look, but just keep sticking with it. And I think when you start getting into the older or whatever, after midlife or around midlife, you can look back at your life and you can see like, it's beautiful. You don't have this opportunity when you're in your 20s and 30s. But as you get a little older, it's like, oh, when there is a form of consistency, you can start to see how your 20s and 30s are really building foundations for your older years. And it's really important to think about just sticking with something because you will see the proceeds and the fruits of your labor with that consistency. And it doesn't have to be one job. It's just more like consistency to your values and consistency to your morals. Expressing your values can show up in many different ways, but just holding them. And I think it's so hard in the West for especially women to feel like, how do you honor your femininity? We have a culture that's telling us to lean in and become men, (laughs) you know, go into the corporate sector and kill it. I was raised in the 80s and that is like so much of the feminist culture was telling me to go corporate. And it was really hard for me to take my academic training and apply it to what I've applied it to. And I think it's becoming a little easier, I think, for other generations because the climate is so scary that I think people are like, of course, I can't feed into that system. Of course, I have like the choices are more obvious. But um, I think the way we win this, the way we sustain life on this planet is by being consistent in our values. Yeah, I don't know what else to say except that. (laughs) Perfect. Well, Green Dreamer, to learn more and stay updated on Rebecca's work, you can head to www.fibershed.com. And you can also follow them on Instagram at Fibershed underscroll and on Twitter and Facebook at Fibershed. All of this will be linked in our show notes as well that you can find at greendreamer.com. Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us today for round two on Green Dreamer. Where can we find your books? And if our listener were interested in supporting and being a part of this Fibershed movement, what steps would you recommend they take? They can go to www.fibershed.org. We do have a calendar of events. Some of that calendar applies to events going on in and outside of our area. So there's ways to engage in, in mending and natural dyeing and farming and ethnobotany. It's there. And then if they want the book that Chelsea Green is a cooperatively owned publisher out of, uh, I think, out of Vermont, they have a website that hosts the book and you can get it at any, I think, major bookstore and you can order it directly from the publisher. The last piece around ways to get involved, if you're a design student, if you're in a if you're in a brand and you're working in this field, there are ways to start, you know, with this book and other people who've authored books around this these subjects, there's ways to start informing yourself to be a change agent at a, at a very critical point in our history. And so those working to design their own textiles or brands or are working in an already existing business, you have such such an important role to play right now. And so uh, if there's anything that Fibershed can do for those listening who want more understanding of biogeochemistry, want an understanding of how ag- animal agriculture isn't just our number one problem, but can be done well. If there's questions people have, they can come to our organ. We are developing, we have many workshops and trainings and professional development opportunities. And we also work one-on-one with people who really want to make great changes and strides in their textile business. 
Beautiful. So reach out. <laughs> yeah. And to close off, what final words of wisdom do you have for us as green dreamers? Oh, just keep dreaming because that's what we have is our capacity to imagine a future and just keep asking yourself, what do you want to see? And even daily ask yourself what you want to see because it will, it, it will turn into a manifested world. And I think the the troubles we face are so daunting. So it's really important to give yourself time to keep dreaming. 